I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Technology is a very broad field and touches many other fields. Camille Eddy, mechanical engineer and keynote speaker, explained different areas in technology that she has worked on. We begin the discussion with machine learning. Camille explained different machine learning systems we interact with, how bias can be present in these systems, and ways to combat this bias. We then talked about mechanical engineering and discussed the process of building a robotic hand. Camille explained the design and prototype process, and we also talked about the hardware and software engineering components of this. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank Blind for being a sponsor. Blind is an anonymous app for tech workers to discuss, debate, and talk about compensation, corporate policies, workplace harassment, and more. I've used it for over a year and find it really helpful. There are 50,000 companies active on Blind. Check if yours is there and connect with other employees. Blind is available for iOS, Android, and online at teamblind.com. Go to teamblind.com to download the app. Thank you. Camille Eddy, mechanical engineer and keynote speaker, is joining us today. Camille, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's great to have you today. And I want to talk about bias in technology first. We hear about bias being present in different areas of technology, from machine learning to hiring to products. Can you talk about about this in more detail, about the presence of bias in technology, some of the things you've seen? Yeah, it's one of the topics I'm really passionate about, definitely. And what it comes down to is the fact that we have this great big push for more diversity in STEM, for more people to be in STEM, for people of color to be in STEM. Um, but what the underlying message of that means is that we as people of color have not been developing technology for a very long time. We have not been the direct source of input for how the world that we see today is shaped by the technology that we are using. And when it gets to things like artificial intelligence that have really hidden ways of working, you know, it's not accessible or understandable to every person just how artificial intelligence works. You can see that by how, you know, Facebook's had to like do some backtracking, um, Google as well, you know, just different things where they're using artificial intelligence and we can't fix it and we can't identify the problem. Um, that becomes an even more serious nature. So when it comes to bias, it's important to understand that for so long, not everyone has been at the table. And it's a privilege to be able to, you know, whether you're interning, working as a full-time employee, going to school, you're managing to get yourself a seat at that table of being able to influence technology. So some of the prevalent examples of bias in our current technology are things simple as a face recognition. 
you know, sometimes uh, facial recognition um, software has problems identifying people of different skin tones. And that's a bias that's there because of a lack of testing. So like, say you have a full research team that's working on putting out this software. If the research team isn't diverse and the testers aren't diverse, then you come up with some of those issues. And also awareness. So this is where I get into where I go and speak to nonprofit crowds mostly talking about culture bias in AI. And it's the idea that, you know, as you're developing technology on a very small scale, you're not necessarily thinking about where your technology is going to be used elsewhere. And so if we have awareness of, no, you can't just use a small data set to train your artificial intelligence models. You got to use broader data sets. You have to use more than one picture uh, or example of a face that's um, a different skin tone. Uh, You have to use different shades because we're all different shades, beautiful shades. That's where you can see some of the gaps in our technology, not just in the fact that there are a lack of diverse researchers and technologists, but also that there's a lack of awareness on the business case side. So that's really important. And we're getting into more and more examples because today we're using more and more technology that either has hidden implications like artificial intelligence or that just straight out don't work. Another place for bias is able-bodied people, right, versus people who have different challenges physically. That's also another example of where we can be doing more to include more diverse voices. And then one last example is the fact that the whole world isn't online. Um, There are many parts of the world that are not on the internet today, freely accessing the internet. So that means there's a whole black hole of experiences that we can't draw from. Even as we are pushing for diversity in STEM, there are a lot of students who are going to be coming up through the ranks that haven't had the opportunity even more so than maybe myself being in America versus someone in another country has to understand and get to know the technology that we live on today in first world countries. So I'm really interested in seeing what's going to look like as more and more societies and communities from around the world get online and how they're going to react to the world that we've built without them. And those are just some of the examples that I've come to see. You mentioned a couple of things, for example, the importance of this awareness, but also the fact that a lot of people don't understand how AI works. So it seems something very abstract to them that they're not really involved in. However, now more than ever, we have systems powered by AI in our day-to-day lives. Can you give out some examples of these systems that behind the scenes are using machine learning and AI that some people might not even realize? Yeah, I remember once I was in a car with an Uber driver and she was asking me the same thing, like, oh, what is machine learning? What is artificial intelligence? So buzzword that's thrown out there is machine learning. And one of the things to know is that artificial intelligence or AI is like the overall thing that we talk about. Like artificial intelligence is a technology. Machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence. And so sometimes those words are used interchangeably because they're the same family tree. Now, machine learning learning is one of the things that powers your navigation system. So like Google Maps, your Apple Maps, that's using machine learning. 
and MRIs use machine learning. When you go to the hospital and you're going to an MRI to get a scan, they use machine learning to understand and to interpret the brain scans or whatever scans are coming through. Your traffic lights also use AI and to you know detect cars or do their operations. Another example, of course, um, we're probably more familiar with this, is image recognition. Um, so say you're on Pinterest, for example, and Pinterest has millions of images, right? And you say, like, please show me a bunch of plants. It's using machine learning to categorize all the images it has in this database and give you a plant. So those are some examples. Um, I like to say that we've definitely moved from just simply being like a day-to-day experience. When you put down your phone, which maybe is where you most associate artificial intelligence, you're still interacting with an artificial intelligence or machine learning in some form, minute by minute, through your everyday life. So even without your phone, without touching your phone, you're still being affected by artificial intelligence by some of those other tools I mentioned, like you know, streetlights, MRIs. There's a whole host. Machine learning and artificial intelligence has been here for a while, and we just just now starting to understand its prevalent use. What I also find interesting is that we talk about how part of the biases can come from not having a diverse team that's doing the testing, but also these biases can come from people that are not even working in the tech industry. For example, a writer in a newspaper. Can you explain how this is possible? Yeah, this is a really, this has definitely come into um, view and into focus. For example, they, Microsoft and a couple other people did some research on a particular machine learning training algorithm. And what that means, it's an algorithm that trains another algorithm. So there was an algorithm that Google used to train their search engine. It's called Word2Vec. And what these Microsoft researchers found was that there was implicit bias. And so that if you were to ask this machine learning algorithm to make a qualification, so for example, um, basic algebra speak here, but say you ask the algorithm, man is to computer programmer as woman is to what? And the answer would be woman is to homemaker as man is to computer programmer. And that's a problem. And what they found out was that they trained this Word2Vec algorithm off of news articles from Google News. So Google News is bringing in articles from all over the web. And in those Google News articles, there is implicit bias in how we speak about each other. And so in the words that we use and how we talk about each other, in our written language, and our spoken language, this algorithm decided that there was a relationship or a formula and that that happened to be man is the computer programmer as woman is the homemaker. So that's how we are actually seeing the bias propagate through other technologies because Word2Vec is a very popular training model that's used in many other projects across the board when it comes to search engines and things like that. And so that's why it's important to be aware that you can't just train our your machine learning models or your algorithms off of the internet, for one, but also not just train it on some data set and say, oh, because I 
compiled this data set myself. I looked at it a little bit. That does not mean that it's necessarily diverse in doing its job correctly. And so it's really important to have transparency. And this is one of those steps to transparency to understanding the technology that you're using. Yes. And not even the quantity of data helps in this case too. It's like, I have all these data from newspapers from all over. Then you have to look carefully. And I think now there are steps to analyze and see if there's bias in the data set. Yeah. And in fact, I think Microsoft just came out with an article where they're looking at that and they come up with some tool. The other thing too is, you know, just to encourage transparency, not just in these tools, but encourage transparency in places like Facebook. Like they should, I would like to encourage them to show us what their algorithms are. And someday, you know, a lot of that is regarded as proprietary information. You know, it's a special formula that they want to keep secret, like a recipe at some at Nestle, you know. But I think one day at some point, we're going to have to get to the point where there is more transparency in these algorithms and that, you know, the lay person who's aren't just studying this can also understand what's going on. What is the role of the founder of a company or somebody at a nonprofit in tackling bias in technology? Definitely awareness. You know, just I give my talk about culture bias and AI to nonprofit conferences all over the country. And I don't go in there and I definitely don't present on super technical subjects. You know, I kind of give this overview of what it looks like in a tangible sense. And at the end of the talk, I usually get a lot of questions like, so what am I supposed to do to fix it? Like, what are the concrete tools that I can use to check my work? And part of the answer is one, those tools haven't been developed yet at all. We have just begun to start thinking about this. And one of the reasons we begin to start thinking about this is because the users who are saying like, hey, I'm using this product and it's not serving me well, are starting to speak up and speak up loudly. So we have to realize that even though machine learning and artificial intelligence has been here for a while, because our user base hasn't been as diverse as it could be, we haven't been red flagging these tools and these technologies. So we haven't really fully grasped and created, you know, just out of the box, ready to use tools to combat bias. So the role of a founder, a CEO, anyone who's on a leadership team, you don't even have to be a founder or CEO. You can just be in leadership or, you know, just someone who's at the table. If you're at the table of this conversation, I think it's important to, one, bring up conversations, bring up specifics. When you see something, you know, say something. Maybe you can only do so much within the context of your work environment or your academic environment, but definitely start asking questions and get people used to the idea of thinking about these things because some people will shrug it off automatically. They'll be like, that doesn't matter. But that means that we have to do more work on our part to convince them that it does matter. And then the next thing is to go ahead, either seek out or fund research opportunities into seeing how we can combat this. Show your support, especially if you're a CEO or someone in leadership or in a very, um, you're in an emerging technology field and you're influential in your industry. You can have a voice in saying, I, as an influential partner in this industry, would like to see more work done in this area, more tools developed. And that sends a ripple through the pond and definitely send ripples as you can to get the message out that these are tools that we desire and we want to see, and we need to see more of them sooner than later. I want to switch gears now and talk a bit about mechanical engineering, which is the area that you studied in college and you've done various internships 
in mechanical engineering. So first I want to ask you, what does mechanical engineering consist of? Yeah, I like sharing this part because I feel not everybody who's not in mechanical engineering right away, especially if you're like an intern or a student, has had the opportunity to really see it from the inside. And I can say from the internships that I've had, I feel like mechanical engineering is a really cool overview of engineering as far as like the process goes. Obviously, you know, I stick on the hardware side. So in hardware, when you get like a product, I feel like mechanical engineers are kind of bringing systems together. Usually we have to work with the electrical team, electrical engineering team, and the industrial engineering team to bring together the mechanical aspect of the product. So I like that in a way that it's interdisciplinary to um, some effect, where um, in most of the jobs that and internships I've been in, I've had to work with another, a whole other discipline, at least. At least one other discipline, if not more than one other discipline. So I've done a lot of work in robotics. Right now I'm working on autonomous cars and it's the same thing. You know, I'm having interface and see emails come into my inbox from other disciplines who who need to collaborate with my project. So that way we get everything in um, correctly and it's sound. And I like that part. I like the part of like managing different ideas and, you know, different threads of conversations to bring everything together. I like that cross collaboration. And I feel like mechanical engineers get a lot of that. The other thing about mechanical engineering is like the design work. Definitely enjoy um, designing new technology. Again, just like I encourage other people to have a seat at the table and to express, you know, your ideas and concerns about other areas, whether it's bias or something else. I feel like I also have the opportunity while doing being even being at the internships that I've been in, because in the mechanical engineering internships that I've had, you're not just going around doing gopher projects, you're doing projects that actually matter to the company. And so I've been at the table at some really interesting conversations at very interesting companies who are putting out a product. And it's like, wow, I actually am hearing these discussions as they happen and what that looks like on the inside versus being on the outside and, you know, seeing the results of it. So, yeah, I think mechanical engineering is really interesting in that way. And also internships are definitely very valuable. And the ability to see what happens on on the inside of the companies without, you know, saying like, okay, I signed the dotted line and I'm going to be at this company for six years. You know, it just kind of gives you that mobility to kind of understand a bunch of different perspectives. Let's talk about the design process. One of your internships was in robotics at HP, and I saw that here you developed a robotic hand. Can you explain what the hand does? Yeah. So that was a really cool project where I, it was my first internship ever. And get this, it was also my first time ever working with robotics. I never worked with robotics before. And the project that was given to me was they wanted to do printer testing, but they wanted to do printer testing that was, it could multitask because the robots that they had at the time only did one action at a time. And that was all I could do. So they're like, what if we had a robot that could actually multitask? So the only project description I was really given was, we want you to create an actuator that can do multiple tasks. And they had a list of tasks that they kind of generally wanted it to do. And I was like, well, the best actuator that I know of is a human hand. And so why don't I design a human hand? And so they had 
excellent resources at HP. That's really like key number one to an internship. Go somewhere where they have excellent resources and HP is definitely well-resourced. And I got to sit down first day at my computer with SolidWorks and I started designing this hand and I designed it to be 3D printed. So that was 3D print design under my belt right away, which is great. And we had 3D printers in the basement. So I got to go down and do rapid prototyping and fail fast. And within three months, I designed a robot hand that was 3D printed and that used a wire push-pull system, which basically means like to, you know, curl the fingers on this robotic hand. Um, It used wires to pull the joints down. So I designed joints as well into this hand, right? And then the next part was, okay, if you're going to have a testing robotic hand, it needs to be able to have repeatable action. And so I thought about that for a second, like, what does that mean? How am I going to make this happen? And some of the examples for other robotic cans were out there and I researched them. But then I was like, I would really like to do something that was was a little bit more cutting edge. And that's where I came with the idea of having it controlled by a 3D camera. So a 3D vision camera, if you're not familiar with it, like Connect or um, any other types of cameras like that, or even maybe um, a VR headset like the HTC Vive. It captures, instead of a 2D image, it captures a 3D image. It uses depth perception, so it knows the depth and how close you are to the camera. And so what I did was, this 3D camera would capture the motion of my actual hand, like my human hand. I would put it in front of this camera and move my fingers, and then my 3D printed robotic hand would move along with me and would mimic my motions. And that was also another time where I got to collaborate with a computer engineering intern. So again, bringing in another discipline. And she helped work on the computer science behind it while I focused on the mechanical design and perfected that. And together, we got it done within three months, which was pretty spectacular. And also just, you know, a really strong case for collaboration and working on a team. What was that interaction like with the software engineer? Because I, the development cycle might be different, right? Yeah, I think because we were both interns, it was helpful because it wasn't like I was working with another team or and we weren't really working apart. We were working pretty much together. So this was her project too, and this is my project, right? So it wasn't like we were siloed, and that really helped. The fact that we were actually collaborating together. We were regularly talking. We Since we were interns, we had lunch together all the time. We went to events together all the time. So that meant our collaboration was really high because we were together to do this work together and to talk and to talk about where we are going next. So we kind of worked hand in hand. I mean, we probably visited each other's cubes twice or three times a day and just to check out what was happening. In fact, I used the palm of her hand. We 3D scanned the palm of her hand as the base of the robotic hand. So there was just a lot of cross collaboration there where she used her skill set and I used my skill set and they were complementary. And I think communication is really key. you got to have a really great communication to have great teamwork and to work well together. And that's where we excelled. So it was more than just the fact that she had computer science skills and I had mechanical skills. It was the fact that we also had complementary personalities. We worked well together. We were both curious. We both gave each other space and like leadership in our own spaces and we respected each other, right? And so through that, even though like sometimes she would come to me with a conflict and say, hey, you know, I'm doing this 
analysis, this joint analysis, this math behind it, and your math isn't matching up with mine, we need a resync here. And so then we would do that. So yes, we were working on two different parts, right, of the project, but we collaborated and communicated with each other um, pretty frequently. In terms of the prototype, is there a step before the 3D printing in the sense that you can use clay or something else? One of the things which I was able to do was in SolidWorks when I was designing it. If you're not familiar with SolidWorks, it's a 3D CAD tool like AutoCAD, but SolidWorks. And I was able to design the fingers. And one of the things that SolidWorks allows you to do is, let's say I had about, there's five fingers in the hand, so about three pieces per finger. So I had probably about 16 pieces if you include the base, the palm part of the hand. So 16 different pieces, basically separate pieces, like three joints for each finger and a palm piece. And SolidWorks allows you to assemble all those pieces together in an assembly file. So that way you can look at it as if it's fully assembled, um, but it's obviously on your computer in a digital environment. But the other thing that SolidWorks allows you to do, it allows you to apply physics so that you will collide with the ends of the fingers. So like my joints, say I designed my, and I did, design my joints um, poorly or it just wasn't, it's a prototype, right? So I'm designing as I go. And I saw that like when I tried to curl the fingers of the hand, it didn't curl all the way forward. It kind of stopped. Kind of like if you take your palm out right now and you try to fold your fingers, but then you like just kind of flex them instead of folding them, you just flex. Maybe it would stop like that. And that's how I was able to cut down some of the 3D printing time because I could look at those interferences um, basically, what was happening is the joints would try to come together, but there'd be too much material and they'd collide instead of curling like they should. And I would be able to do that to and fix those things before I printed. Another early prototype that I used, it was still 3D printing, but it was, was 3D printing like on the extreme side. So... I 3D printed actually, um, for the first 3D print I ever had was like the slab for the palm and I put the joints on it and I realized like one, you can't design a flat palm piece, you know, for the palm of your hand. It can't be flat because that doesn't give you the dexterity that I was looking for because your hand, if you, if you fold your thumb over to your pinky, you can see like that's actually improving the dexterity of your hand versus if the only thing you could do is keep your palm flat like you would put it on down on a table, right? So being able to fold your thumb over to your pinky is an incredible like muscle movement if you think about it. And so that was actually one of my early prototypes where I designed a flat palm. I was like, actually, this does not work. And that's why I went to 3D scan of using um, my intern partner's um, palm as the base because the way her palm sat, it allowed me to improve the dexterity of the hand. So those are some of the early prototypes. Definitely as you get up further into the design process, especially my design process, it gets more expensive, right? You got to add wire. Even the 3D scanning was expensive because we had to take time with another engineer and go into a lab and take like about half an hour to scan. So that's time and money. So there is definitely, um, and I suggest this for all people, to have some type of prototype slash just fast iteration and then get to the part where you're taking more time and money to refine the process. You're a board member of Girl STEM Stars, which is a nonprofit academy 
to encourage confidence and excitement in STEM for girls of color and people from underrepresented communities. What has been your involvement with this organization? Yeah, so I think one of the great things about being out in the Bay Area and really in any area, if you're on the internet, you're on a populous place too, but the Bay Area is so populous and has such so many great and amazing people. I met my good friend Kuoba Alaire through my friends at HP actually. And she had invited us to this camp that she was hosting. And she was bringing these girls through to teach them about STEM, which is really cool. And I, and a year later, after keeping up communication with her, volunteering with her a couple of times, um, she asked me to be a board member. So I've been privileged to be able to actually host my own meetups for the girls um, that are in this program, where um, I've taken them out to Google a couple of times. We did tours there and been able to help them fundraise and talk to people about Girls Den Stars. And so for me, it was just the process of giving back and being just as active as others were in my early years of education, where I was going to events like these, going to camps and, and being tutored and mentored about why she get into STEM. And so it's just that period of turning around and giving back to to the process that brought me up as well. Um, yeah, and it's been really cool to just meet with these girls because everybody's an individual, right? And to see how the stories are different, but still the same is really cool. Still girls from underserved communities that don't necessarily have the opportunity to do coding. That's their first time ever really coding anything. Being able to remember what it was like for me the first time that I touched, you know, code and was like, what is this? What is the syntax? Oh, it's kind of like English, but it's not English. You know, that kind of wonder and amazement that you can talk to a computer so I've been able to do all that, see that, watch that. And then I'm hoping that as I continue to do that type of work, that more people will volunteer because we definitely, you know, you always need volunteers in whatever community you are to just help spark that knowledge and that excitement, like you said. So, yeah, that's what I try to do. I try to encourage the girls, but then also encourage other people to volunteer as a board member to get involved. And even if it's not Girl STEM Stars, get involved in some way whatever community that um, you're in. In San Diego, I'm, I help out another group called Lil Star, which is another really cool group that also serves underserved Black and Latino communities. And then there's also the NAACP that has events out here. So um, there's all kinds of options. And I totally encourage anyone and everyone to get involved. And Girls STEM Stars, is that one only available in San Francisco? Yes. So this one's only available in San Francisco, but there are many other similar programs. You got Black Girls Code, which has a few different bases. I they got I believe they have one in Boston, New York. There's one here in the Bay Area. There's a couple others. You also have a couple of others that you can I can totally start a conversation with anyone who's interested, either on Twitter or Instagram, about you know finding communities for STEM organizations in your area. Boys and Girls Club is another great one. Another thing you can do is, whether you're in a school, you're homeschooled, whether you have a Boys and Girls Club in your area or maybe a senior center in your area, you can or a library, of course, the library, you can encourage them to bring in more STEM programs and say, hey, we would love to like see more STEM programs for our students. And maybe they'll ask you to help 
build the program. Whenever someone asks me to build a program, I, I stop them before they can get too far. And I said, yes, there's a program already built and it's called code.org. Uh, code.org is a really cool platform that you can take into an individual environment. So say you have a student that's saying, I want to learn how to code. You can just hand it over to them, code.org, or you can take it into a group environment where you can host a whole like meetup with kids and get them involved or whoever um, and get them involved in coding. And they're self-taught, you know, you go through it yourself, taught activities that, and you can pick from multitudes of activities and just learn the basics of coding and coding language. And then say you master the very first level, you can go and start learning JavaScript on that same platform. So code.org is a great place to get started anywhere, whether or not you have a community that you can go to, but even if you want to start a community, it's a great place to start. Camille, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks to Blind for being a new sponsor of the show. Go to teamblind.com. That's teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. Check it out. Check it out.